Hi, my name is Jung Bui and I'm one of the partners at Council for Creators. We are a Los Angeles-based law firm and we work with clients in the arts, creative and entertainment industries. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of First off, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, we have been working together uh, with you, uh, my company East Films and the Vietnamese podcast for the support, your legal support for, for many years now. And I have a lot of weird tangent questions about your work and the legal, um, the legal work that you do within the creative space uh, today. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've uh, been a big fan of podcasts, obviously, for a long time. We're friends, so uh, really happy to support you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really wonderful to be able to work with the Vietnamese community. With the Vietnamese community, um, a lot of folks that we work with happen to be friends. So that makes things pretty exciting and fun. And it's really gratifying to see the growth of all of your respective businesses and to see all the cool things that you guys uh, get to work on and uh, all the creative expression that does happen. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's all been great. So when you look back, because you could have taken a lot of different directions uh, in your legal path, why entertainment? Yeah, you know, I, saw, I sort of fell into it. I, during law school, I got an internship at a production company and I was essentially drafting contracts for reality talent for uh, Bravo TV shows for Bravo reality shows and you know just seeing the intricacies of these deals and also how it aligned more with me personally I feel like I come from a creative background I'm a creative person and you know going to court uh, litigation divorces those were uh, those were not appealing parts of uh, the legal industry that I wanted to be involved with. But entertainment, transactional work, that seemed really cool. So I started from there. And then when I graduated from law school, I uh, it, that was in 2009. So that was like the height of the last recession. Yeah. Right? So that, was, that year was crazy because there's all these law firms that are actually closing down. These multinational, huge law firms been around for like decades. Uh, they were going out of business. So the legal industry had contracted. So for me, I was like, okay, well, if I can't get a job working for a company I want to work for now, I'll start out by working in indie film because I have so many friends that are independent filmmakers that need legal help. So that's what I started doing. Mm. I started working as a legal counsel for independent uh, film productions in 2009, 2010. And then I got a job at NBC. I got fortunate enough to get a job at NBC. I worked at NBC for two and a half years. And then our mutual friend, Ken Jung, who's another attorney, uh, I befriended him and he asked me to join his practice and build out his entertainment practice. Uh, so then I was working on indie films in the U.S., uh, but then also uh, Ken had an office in Saigon, in Ho Chi Minh City, obviously, right? So you work with Ken yeah. quite often. So then I started working with clients in Vietnam and on Vietnamese productions and with Vietnamese talent like Ham Tran, who's also one of our friends, the brilliant director. And... From there, uh, I uh, left Ken's fir uh, firm after a couple years, started my own practice, and fast forward nine years, and you know, we Council for Creators is uh, has been uh, since since we founded Council for Creators, it's been what eight 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 and a half years now. So, yeah, I, I want to know what makes a good legal um, entertainment attorney because 
there's a lot. There's a lot of attorneys in town, but why do we keep coming back to you? What What do you think makes somebody in the legal profession good, and especially when it relates to creative endeavors? Yeah, this is something that's really important to me and my partner. When we founded Council for Creators, we had identified a lot of pain points with uh, legal services. So I think if you're asking what makes a good attorney, you want to, uh, an entertainment attorney, you want to take a step back and say, what makes a good attorney? Uh, what makes a good advocate for their clients, right? And I would say a good attorney uh, is responsive, right? I think there's a reputation of attorneys ghosting their clients yeah. or not res being responsive, being on a, like a need-to-know basis with them, right? I think having a clear channel of communication, being responsive uh, uh, from a communication standpoint is really important. I think the second thing that's important is understanding the client's needs uh, on a deeper level, right? Because Yes, we're being paid to provide a service, but I think it's much more meaningful if I come from a place where I, uh, for example, like uh, my film clients, I read their screenplays. I always read their screenplays before they, even before they go into like production, right? And some of them always ask me like, why do you do that? Why do you even bother reading like a 120 page screenplay? I was like, I want to understand what you're yeah. doing. I want to understand what you're working on. And also I think it's super interesting, right? I love film. I love music. I love all these different things. I love art. And I think that passion is authentic. And I think my clients see that, right? So I don't think you need to be like super into the things that your clients are, but I think to have an authentic uh, understanding and intent to understand, uh, I think that goes a long way, right? You're not faking it, you know? Yeah. And it makes me think about this idea of, you know, doctors, they're specialists, right? There's people that do brains. There's people that do all these specialty. When we're thinking about entertainment lawyers, there's also specialties too, but there's also generalities and contracts and, you know, just legal ideas. When we as entertainment people, whether we're actors or lawyers, uh, actors or singers or filmmakers, is there easily identifiable entertainment lawyers that we should go and seek? Or do you think it's one size fits all? I know it's a kind of a complicated question, but if you are in the entertainment industry as a filmmaker, uh, does it matter if you go to a music uh, lawyer? Can yeah. We, uh, can you sit on that for a second? Like, you got to adjust the positioning of this mic. So uh, currently when you're moving, it's kind of like, I can hear it this mic moving. Yeah, it's broken. It's, yeah. So. Want to move it out more so it's not in yeah. your way? Okay, I would try not to move. Um, Maybe move it out. Yeah, like even if it jitters a little bit, it makes noise because yeah. it's, I think the impact of this hitting yeah. this is like pretty killer. Is it, is it pretty bad? Better now? Um, yeah. Try moving a little bit, like doing. Okay. Yeah. Gestures. No. Better. Much better. Yeah. Actually, okay. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Sorry about that. Okay. No, you're good. Okay. So. So you were just answering that, right? Yes. Okay. 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 So I'm gonna clap again just for syncing purposes. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Yeah, I think that there. Yeah, you're. You're. You're right. The. The, the legal profession, there are a lot of, uh, of of specialties and niches, right? And within entertainment, yes, there are entertainment attorneys that do just music, right? Just work with music uh, clients and clients in the music industry. I think it's important if you're like a music producer, yes, you should definitely seek a specialist because music law in particular is a very specific type of law that is very nuanced. 
there's all these things relating to how uh, royalties are calculated that's very specific to the music industry, right? So yes, for sure, if I'm a music producer, I would want to go with a music attorney. If I'm a filmmaker, I would want to go with an entertainment attorney that uh, has worked with uh, other uh, filmmakers that represents films or, 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 or companies or individuals in the uh, film industry or in the uh, TV industry, right? Um, but I think, like, you know, taking a step back, if you're looking for an attorney, I think what, what I always tell people is the first thing you want to look for is uh, if there's a, a, a synchronicity uh, from a vibe standpoint, mm. right? You want to you, you get along with yeah. the people that you work with, right? And you don't want to, because I've talked to people who are like, oh, I got to talk to my lawyer. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's going to be super drag. This guy's boring or this person, like, I just don't enjoy talking to them, right? Like this person, you're going to be working with them and you're entrusting so much important stuff to them right why wouldn't you want to get along with them and also like be comfortable with them too now sure there might be situations where you have to work with a specific person or whatever but generally you have the freedom there's so many lawyers especially in la right especially in southern california and actually not even exclusive to southern california there are so many entertainment attorneys that are great that are out there you know find the one that fits your vibe and then think about okay attorneys can can be expensive or Sometimes their fees may be cost prohibitive, so find someone that sinks from a budget standpoint too. Because there's again, there's so many attorneys out there, you will be able to find someone that works for you. You know what you just said reminds me of this uh, sort of this paradigm where when you think about our group, you're like family to all of us, sure. right? Yeah. But you think about like the Godfather movies, right? I mean, it's a funny <laughs> analogy, right? The conciliary, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The conciliary, yeah. the, the the lawyer is the person that's with these families and with these groups of teams of people. We're the problem. We we for better or for worse, yeah. attorneys like are considered the problem solvers, right? Like that's that's just how And the problem preventers. And the problem preventers, but generally the problem solvers. Yeah. So yeah. Now, when we're first starting out um, as a creative, and hey, you know, we on, sorry, Brittany, the storage is full. Oh, no. I think you're good for all that. Okay, can you just stop that? So no more. Good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> we're good. Yeah. So when we're first starting out as creatives, we don't have a whole lot of money, but we need to get these contracts and things looked at to make them ironclad. Yeah. How do young creatives go about looking for somebody with your experience and, you know, something affordable, but that, you know, they don't have the money for it? Yeah, I think the first step I always tell a young filmmakers and young creatives that I talk to who can't necessarily afford our services is uh, we have... There are a lot of arts organizations out there that are specifically designed to provide uh, uh, support for uh, creatives on a budget, I guess, so for lack of a better term. There's a really great organization called California Lawyers for the Arts, and what they do is they take on pro bono and low-cost clients often. And then attorneys like myself, we serve, as, uh, we serve on their panel, meaning we get assigned. The, so like if I have like extra bandwidth, in my in in uh, and I'm able to take on like a pro bono case. California Lawyers for the Arts will uh, direct a client to me to to be on a pro bono basis. Uh, a lot of attorneys provide free consultations, so although they can't provide legal advice until you're a client, um, you can still kind of talk high level about okay, I don't even know what I need in order to get started. Can you just tell me what I need? And like I'm always happy to talk to people, and I think a lot of my colleagues are too, right? 
Um, and then I think even just knowing what you don't know can be a very powerful thing. The worst thing, you know this, the worst thing yeah. is knowing that you know everything, right? And just and making decisions based yeah. off of that ignorance, right? So knowing what you don't know and just sort of leaning into that instinct will lead you to ask questions, will lead you to start connecting with people and stuff. And then there's always like the opportunity to meet with other, uh, to be mentored by other more established filmmakers who maybe have other options or resources available to, to share with you as well. So, what, what do you think are some of the legal challenges that young creatives face when they first start out? Yeah, so when we talk to, one of the things that's really important to us as a philosophy in providing legal services to creatives is we always tell, um, we always tell our clients to think about four aspects of your, of your creative career. Number one, think about it as a business, right? You're not just doing this for fun. You're not just following your passion. You're trying to make money out of this, right? So creating this formal uh, structure for yourself where you're thinking about what you're doing, the creative expression that you're doing as a business can go a long way because it can frame a lot of what you're going to be doing, yeah. a lot of decisions you're going to be making. Um, and then that could lead to, okay, well, I'm working with other people. Maybe I need to align, uh, we all need to be aligned by having some sort of partnership agreement or collaboration agreement. Maybe maybe I uh, need to hire an editor. So what does that relationship look like? So then you start thinking about your relationships that you have to manage, right? And the third thing you want to think about is your creations, the things that you're creating. How do you protect them, right? Um, and then the last thing you want to think about sometimes is, okay, eventually, if I become established in my career, I'm going to have a brand. Right. And my brand is going to connect the, my audience to me. Right. So what is that brand and what is the value that I want to introduce to grow that brand? Right. So those are the, generally the four things. And I think all the challenge to your question, the challenges come from a variety of those areas. Right. I think a lot of times uh, one of the things I see a lot is collaboration, working with other people. I'm, I'm sure you too. <laughs> I see you smiling. So I know, I know, you know, it's like being able to um, have uh, uh, mutual understanding between everyone that you work with is ideal. And sometimes, yeah, you work with your friends, you work with your uh, people that you met at school, you're not assuming that you're not going to get along. You're not assuming that things are going to go south. But maybe have those conversations like, hey, what does this look like for us to make this thing together? What does it mean for us if this thing takes off? Like, how do we make decisions? How do we exploit it? Uh, what happens if I want to leave? What happens if I want to bring on someone else? Like, these are these can just be very high-level general conversations that you don't need a contract to document. You can just have it in an email or something, right? And sometimes people have a hard time having those conversations because they are difficult conversations to have because you're contemplating failure in a sense, right? Like, what if this thing doesn't go 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 how we are yeah. planning to do it? But I think there has to be some level of pragmatism too in what you're doing, right? And also, like, if you think about it, going back to what I was saying earlier, um, relationships. You want to manage your relationships and preserve those relationships. And even if you can't get this project off the ground with your friends, maybe you still want to be friends with them afterwards, right? So that's one thing I see that happens quite often. Do creatives come to you often after the fact? You know, after that they've been working with each other but have no agreement? Oftentimes, yes. And what happens? What's the recourse for that? Um, nothing really. I mean, like, so I think we've we've been around for uh, for eight, nine years now. So I think our messaging, our social media, our brand presence, everything that we do is geared towards the idea of proactive, being proactive, right? 
And so I think a lot of people come to us, find us because they know like, oh, that these, this law firm likes to help their clients yeah. be proactive and set things up before things go south. But yeah, inevitably people come to us all the time where they're in the middle of something and then they realize, oh shoot, I need to get a contract with my partners or whatever. So, it, you know, it's never fatal. It's just like, I always tell people like, you probably did most of the hard work already because the hard work is the conversation. You come to an attorney, like, sure, we can guide you, we can give you advice, we can give you a set of questions to ask each other. But if you're already having those conversations, all you need to do is to get those in sync with e get get in sync with each other so that you all are on the same page. Then you come to us and then we can draft something for you, right? That, that leads me to the next thought, which is what are some of the things that we can prevent, you know, when we are going into these partnerships? Or, I mean, things preventing on a leap... On a legal level, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about before we get to you and say, all right, let me think about some things and then I sit down with you and then we have a consultation and I've already wrote all the things that I, what are the things that you can prevent? Yeah, it's hard, right? Because I think sometimes as a creative, you're sort of carried by this creative momentum yeah. where you just want to create and make things. So you don't ever stop to think. And sometimes that, that stopping to think is usually when I come into the picture, right? <laughs> right? Um, but I, I think coming prepared, I think, like I said, if you are using the example of a partnership, right? If you are, if you are already having these conversations and they, they don't even have to be like concrete, it could just be like, what is your goal? Like, what is your goal? What, what would you want talking to your partner? What would you want to have happen? for this project that we're working on together, right? Even that is enough because then you're setting an intention and a goal, right? And that's sort of like the North Star that you're moving yeah. towards, right? That's already powerful enough, right? And then, you know, you can kind of fill in fill in the, the gaps with the other details that you can kind of discuss, like how do we share ownership? How do we uh, make decisions if this thing takes off? Like, can I sell it to someone or do you have to sell or do we have to agree to sell it together? Um, those are the kinds of things that I would say would benefit someone before coming to us like oddly yeah. this all sounds like marriage <laughs> right it yeah. sounds just like marriage that we don't normally have these conversations yeah. when we get married or when we're we usually, dating somebody we usually don't i mean i'm divorced so maybe not the best person <laughs> to talk to you about this but yes i would agree like a partnership is a marriage is a any any relationship that you want to preserve that you're entering right communication is key Communication is very, very, very important, right? So, so yeah, I 100% agree with you. Now, there is this, like, line between sort of, like, the creative energy that creatives put out and sort of, like, being in the lines of danger. Uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, we, we think of, like, artistic expression and this idea of legal constraints. How can we kind of, like, figure that out with you when we're sitting with you? Talking about like the balance between like, I want to do this thing and then I come and say, well, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, so a lot of times there are a lot of attorneys like who do this as well. I like to give people the technical legal answer and then the practical answer. One, one that comes up often is, hey, do I need a permit to shoot in yeah. public? Right. And I'm like, yeah, you do. If you're going to be on Venice Boardwalk, you're going to need a permit uh, from the... Uh, uh, from any sort of local film commission, right? Now, do I see my clients not get permits and shoot anyways? All the time. All the time, right? So there but you my job is to tell you, hey, this is this is what 
this is legally what you would be required to do. And if you don't do it, this is the risk. And then my job is to, is to then, a good, I, th I think a good lawyer, so earlier you had a good, a good question about like what makes a good entertainment lawyer or lawyer. I think like helping their clients evaluate risk is yeah. really, really important, right? So what is the risk? Uh, what, is, what is the consequence? What's the risk of that consequence happening, right? And so, and I think for, for, for clients, I think what would be helpful is to just understand that, yeah, we're not trying to crush your dreams here. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to like protect you. Right. We're trying to protect you and not only protect you in a discreet way, but protect you in a way where ideally this relationship that I have with my client is like, you know, with with you and with all the other folks in the Vietnamese in, uh, uh, community. These are long term relationships. I want to see the growth. Right. So I'm not like if I can protect you in this one discreet moment in this vacuum and then I want to make sure that that extends for the, the life of your career, you know. I have a wacky angle here. Ooh, let's get wacky. <laughs> so when you are sitting with young filmmakers, or even if you can rewind your mind to 2010, 11, when you're starting out, yeah. what are some of the predictors of creatives that are going to go far? Because you sit in a very special seat, right? You sit in a place where you could see the trajectory of very creative people, but like people who don't, really have to like think about legal stuff but from your seat what are the things that you've seen in terms of like a good business brain with the creative uh, mind what are the some of the telltale signs that you're like this kid's gonna go far you know that's an interesting question because we're now we're kind of talking like kind of philosophically about how does success yeah. happen right and there's all these like theories there's all this Malcolm Gladwell stuff about the hours timing luck and i agree with all of that i think speaking from my perspective yeah i've i would say you really can't tell <laughs> you really can't tell on but because like and what I, what, I, what i mean by that is if i take client a and client b and they're both kind generous people who have a creative vision who are very 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 talented right and they both do exactly the same thing. They listen to uh, their advice from not just me, but for everyone else that they're seeking advice from. I mean, if we're looking at entertainment specifically. Probably luck. 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 A lot of luck. A lot of luck. A lot of luck. But if we're going outside of entertainment, because it's such a, like, and by entertainment, I mean, like, film and content and TV, right? There's so much luck involved in succeeding, right? Um, it's the relationships that you build. It's, and I think, like, you know, a lot of it comes to, I, for me, okay, I don't want to cop out, so I will say that one common denominator I see is that they are, like, good, kind people. Mm, wow. Good, kind people generally will succeed more likely than not, right? And of course, they're going to fail a lot, right? But if you're a good, kind person and you're talented and people want to work with you, that makes things a lot easier, Right. I think so. I think kindness can go a long way. That sounds like super sappy. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I mean, I've seen it. So like, and I've seen terrible people succeed, of course, but I also think they're less likely to in this industry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a very basic question that a lot of people do know, but for, for those that don't know, I, I always feel like if I just had one lawyer who was dedicated to me, I don't need a manager and an agent. What are the differences? I mean, really pronounce the difference between a manager, a lawyer, and their agent. This is a great question, and I, I do so. I speak at a lot of for a lot of um, 
at a lot of panels, a lot of like entertainment organizations. I do workshops like like on a regular basis for a few organizations. And one of the things that we always talk about, especially when we're talking to like writers or actors or directors that are like emerging up and coming is this this distinction, right? So when you have you you have representatives as an entertainment professional, uh, we'll call you talent, right? Talent representative, right? There's three kinds. Uh, there's attorneys, there's agents, and there's managers. Uh, agents, they have to be licensed to do what they do, and their job is very, very specific. Their job is to, to procure employment. Their job is to get you a job, right? And they get a commission for that, right? They get a, they get a percentage to get you a job. Managers do not have to be licensed, and they... It's a more, they, they kind of exist more in the gray area. Their job is to advise you on your career, right? Advise you on your career, have relationships that where they can connect you with those relationships and kind of, kind of guide you along the way, right? Kind of nebulous, but also very important. Yeah. I think, you know, with the, their, the way I explain it to people, managers are able to navigate the complexity of uh, your industry and have the relationships uh, in your industry that no one else can, right? So managers can serve a very important purpose. Attorneys, our job is we are bound by uh, our ethical rules, bound by our license, and bound by the, uh, uh, the, the rules of our profession to protect and, 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 and serve in the best interest of our clients, right? And to protect our clients' best interests. The difference between the three, I would say, is we... As attorneys, we can't advise our clients anything that would go against their interests, right? And that would benefit us. Whereas with agents or managers, maybe maybe I'm going to nudge my client to take on a project because I know I'm going to make 20% off of that. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot of money. They can do that. I can't do that. I can't do that at all, right? So that, that is the one difference. Now, I always tell people, you have to, once you get to a certain point, you're going to need all three. You're going to need all three because agents... You, they get you your job. Agents may say, hey, don't worry about the paperwork. I'll have my lawyer look at it, right. which is a no-no. Get your lawyer to do it, right? Because the agent's lawyer works for the agency. Oh, interesting. We work for the talent. When, when, when someone hires me, I work for them, right? So a lot of times... But you would think the agent's lawyer is really on your behalf. Never. I mean, yeah, it's, I shouldn't say never, but yeah, to a certain extent, but like... They are bound by the law. The agent's lawyer is bound by the law to operate in the best interest of the agent and the agency, right? Because that's their client. Think about it that way. That's their client. When I work in-house for a company, for a production company, my client is the production company, not the talent that the production company hires, right? So, so, oh. that's, so those are the differences. Also, uh, we make the least amount of money out of all of them. Because <laughs> agents and managers, their percentages are you know double digits. Typically... Attorneys, if we work on a commission basis, it's going to be 5%, right? Got it. Yeah. But, I mean, okay, so when somebody comes to you and they have like a, a question versus billable hours, how do you sort of mitigate between the choice of like, oh, that's a billable hour or billable half hour versus, hey, uh, Chiung, I have a question. Like, how do we as clients approach you know, lawyers. Yeah. So, 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 what I'm picking on with that question uh, is the um, there's sometimes anxiety from clients because yeah. they're like, if I call Chung, his billable, he's gonna bill me for this phone call. Yeah. So it costs me money, right? 
And that anxiety is a very real thing because of the billable hours model. So for people who don't know, billable hours is when you work with an attorney, you pay them upfront for a certain block of hours, right? And they bill by the hour uh, on 10 minute increments. So for example, if your hourly rate is $500 an hour, right? And you take a 12 minute phone call, you're billing, you bill that phone call 20 minutes. Yeah. So that's like well over $100 for a 20 minute phone, for a 12 minute phone call, right? So yes, that anxiety does exist. And I think that model is very outdated. I think this is one this is one thing that my partner and I, my co-founder partner and I rail against all the time, which is it's a very outdated business model for creatives and for creative clients. Because a lot of times creative clients don't really come from means, right? Or they're trying to preserve, or like creative entrepreneurs, like you're just trying to like say, hold on to your money so you can spend it on other things. Yeah. Because you know every business, every profession, it's uh, every every entrepreneur. You're not just focused on one thing. You have your marketing to think about. Your you have to pay your employees. You have to like launch your product. There's all these different things, right? So you're trying to like conserve money as much as possible and stay on a budget. Billable hours is not going to help you do that because yes, most of the time, if I'm if I'm going by the book, if a client asks calls me, asks for advice, and we're on a billable hour model then I have to charge them. I, I hit the clock, and when I, I get off the phone, I stop the clock, and the clock is gonna say eight. If it's eight, if it's three minutes, I bill you for 10 minutes, yeah. right? Which is standard. So for, for us, we try to think about how do you create predictability, which is so important, right? Because predictability for, for money, uh, as someone who's trying to maintain a budget, is so important, right? So I think there are law firms out there that are moving away from the billable hour model. There are law firms, there are attorneys out there that are doing more flat fee. Like, hey, pay me X amount to do this thing, and that's all you have to pay me. And that includes phone calls. If I'm drafting a contract for you, that includes revisions as well, right? Or if I'm setting up an LLC, this is all you pay. I'm going to pay your filing fees. You need to call me, call me anytime, right? In fact, here's my calendar link so you yeah. can schedule a call with me, right? Because I want to be available to you, or some some law firms now, uh, which is great, and we're one of them. We uh, have uh, subscription models, right? Where the, there are like certain discrete services that you could, you can get legal advice, a phone call, a document review, maybe access to some like resources um, for like a low subscription monthly fee, right? Predictability. That I think yeah. more people are starting to move towards that. Even like my friends that are partners or senior associates in large. Uh, international law firms, they're starting to build out subscription models within their uh, practices and departments, right? Because like, yeah, that's how that's how we expect to pay for things now. That's how we expect to pay for services now, I think, right? As consumers in what, 2020? Yeah, yeah it's, it makes sense. A lot of sense to, to go that way. Now, the idea of protecting IP, which is intellectual property, there's copyright, there's trademark, there's yeah. patents. Sometimes it's a jungle for creatives because we're like using these words interchangeably, but we don't know exactly what they are. Can you explain what the difference is in this uh, legal mumbo jumbo is? Yeah, mumbo jumbo. I like that. Um, so you're right. Like people do use these terms very interchangeably, and it's easy to confuse them, right? So if we think about the the three buckets of intellectual property that you said, there's trademarks there's copyrights, and there's patents. I'll address patents first because I don't do patent law. <laughs> patents is the area of law that protects inventions, how things work, right? Um, very important area of, uh, of, of the law as far as 
protecting and encouraging innovation, I would say, right? Patent lawyers, so earlier you were asked, you, were, you, were, you mentioned that, you know, there are niches for attorneys. Patent law is a specific niche. In fact, you have to take a second bar exam just oh, to wow. be a patent lawyer, right? And a lot of patent attorneys come from technical backgrounds, engineers, bio, um, so that's patents. Trademarks and copyrights is the area of law I think that affects creators the most. So those, those are so the, uh, from an intellectual property standpoint. So if you think about uh, the things that you create, your creations, books, text, films, music, uh, dance sequences, uh, choreography, um, these are all creations. Creations are protected by copyrights. Okay, copyrights is the area of law that protects creations, right? Copyrights are essentially a bundle of rights that the creator has. Once that thing that is original and finished is created, right? So the bundle of rights includes things like, I can sell it. I can make derivative works, meaning like sequels, prequels, or like, you know, uh, spin-offs, whatever. I can sell it to someone else. I can license it to someone else. Those are parts of the bundle of rights that copyright provides to the creator, okay? Trademarks is the area of law that protects brands. Mm. What's a brand? A brand is anything, a word, a name, a slogan, logo. a logo, exactly. So like, I always use McDonald's. McDonald's, the word McDonald's, the, the, the font, McDonald's in the white font, the golden arches, the slogan, I'm, do they still use I'm loving it? Is that still? Yeah, so it's <laughs> okay. all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are all brands of McDonald's, the company. So that as a, as a customer, when I see any of those mm. brands or hear any of those brands, I immediately associate with the company McDonald's. I don't think of Burger King. I don't think of Wendy's. I don't think of In-N-Out. I think of McDonald's. And that is what uh, a brand is. And trademarks is the area of law that protects brands. Right now we're going through a writer's strike and we're going through an actor's strike. Can you explain some of this stuff briefly for us? Yeah, I think we're over 120 days of the strike. I think we were probably closer to 130 days uh, for the writers anyways, the, the actors came in uh, after. But yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to, so every, so you, so the audience may notice that, you know, there have been strikes in the past, right? There have been writer strikes in the past and the strikes happen because there is an agreement that the studios enter with each of the unions, the writer's union, the, the directors, the actors, and these agreements guarantee minimums, right? And by guaranteed minimums, I mean the, the studios, when they hire an, a writer or an actor or a director that is a member of the union, that studio is uh, obligated to honor those minimums, whether they're like, hey, you have to pay this person X amount, for X number of days that they work. You also have to give them um, this type of credit. You also have to, uh, uh, you can't make them work for this this uh, this number of hours consecutively. Things like that, right? So all of these are baked into these uh, contracts. They're, they're called collective bargaining agreements, right? Um, What's happening now is the these agreements they they they're not uh, perpetual they yeah. they they're up for renegotiation every once in a while. So this current renegotiation has been complicated because there is a lot of um, there's been a disruption in the entertainment industry and a lot of that comes from the streaming model. Yeah, the company a company like Netflix right came in and said, hey, studios, we have a, a model that is completely unique. 
we are a company where people pay subscriptions to access our content. And when we acquire content or we uh, create content, we just pay outright for it and we don't really pay residuals, right? In fact, and what residuals are, are um, payments that anyone who's worked on a project get uh, for the, the, uh, that, are, that, that are tied to how, mu how much that content is um, repurposed or, or, or aired again. Right. So that's a traditional residuals are a traditional model of the traditional entertainment industry. That model has been disrupted because Netflix doesn't really pay residuals. In fact, they can't. They argue that they can't because they don't reveal a lot of uh, metrics about their content. How uh, like specifically like how many streams, how many people watched it. They keep that content very closely guarded. Yeah. So that's one thing that's been a problem. Right. Because. All of these renegotiations for all of these past deals have been based off the original model of the entertainment industry, right? But that model doesn't really exist anymore. And then you, now you see all these other traditional studios come in uh, with their own streaming platforms like Disney Plus and Max and whatever. Um, and then also you have tech companies come in and that have a lot of money like Amazon and Apple. And they, they're, they're, I kind of view them as like hobbyists yeah. in a way. They're like, oh, we have a lot of money. We want to do entertainment. It seems fun, right? So you have all these new players in the industry with this and have created this new sort of paradigm, right? And then on top of that, you have AI becoming a thing. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of people have been talking about AI. I don't think I'm uh, an expert by any means. So what I will say is the actors and writers uh, specifically, uh, and I think uh, legitimately feel like the use of technology, including AI by the studios stands to um, uh, eliminate a lot of jobs that actors and writers normally would fill, right? Because the technology is so good now. You could use AI to write screenplays and scripts. You can use AI to, uh, you, can, you can use someone's likeness and then create uh, that person, that person, and you can get their voice. You can get like maybe them to say, an actor to say one line, and then you can use that voice to, create a whole performance. Yeah. That's enough, the technology is there, it's here, right? And so I think there is a sort of, uh, there, a, a tipping point with all that and these actors and writers recognize like, oh shoot, this could mean the end of our careers. This could mean the end of our profession or like, uh, the, uh, or not the end, but a change that is so dramatic, it stands to affect so many of our members. Right. So that's what they're fighting for. And, you know, I'm, I'm in complete solidarity with them because I think that, yeah, like at the end of the day, the studios are going to exploit labor no matter what. Yeah. Right. Because they are beholden to shareholders. Right. And so if they if, if, if they're like, hey, shareholders, we can save so much money and still make the same amount of money and make you guys money. Right. That's that's what their goal is. Right. So like so that goal versus the goal of an actor who's trying to maintain a livelihood um they're they're so far apart right now which is why the strike has now been you know over 120 days now so do you think that there actually is like an end in sight but the studios are just so greedy that they don't want to arrive at that end in sight i mean again i'm no expert here but i do see one possible scenario one possible outcome where the studios so the studios are all when I say studios, I mean all of the major studios. They're all under one bargaining unit, and that's the AMPTP, right. right? I see some of those studios, like maybe Sony, like maybe Paramount, cutting side deals because they can cut side deals. That's that's always and that's always been something that has actually 
uh, moved towards ending strikes, which is when a uh, side deal starts happening and then everyone falls into line. So I can see Sony, I can see Paramount maybe saying, hey, and the, the more traditional studios say, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, we'll WGA, uh, SAG after, we'll cut deals with you directly so we can start making our content so we can get our films and content off the ground again, you know? Um, and then the idea being then uh, Warner, uh, Warner and then um, Universal and Netflix and whoever else will be like, oh, okay, it looks like they entered these side deals. I guess we have to too because we don't want to be the only ones who are not uh, uh, releasing content. Right. Right. So that is one scenario I can see. I just find that, you know, the position Netflix has uh, as the sort of disruptive force that has changed so much of the industry, that's sort of like the, that's the, that's the wild card. So I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, theoretically side, side deals happen, then, you know, the dominoes start to fall. Yeah. It's a. It's always so sad to me that these big corporations have to go so hard in the paint and leave all these, you know, human beings, you know, stranded. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, uh, adding on to your basketball analogy. I would say like uh, it's sort of like uh, Michael Jordan uh, at his like uh, basketball camps with kids, just like posting up all the little kids and like dunking totally. on them. You know, it really is like yeah, that. Yeah. But let's use that same direction to. To answer this, um, I am constantly seeing when artists are being, they're complaining about going into deals that they made 10 years ago when they first started and they blow up and now the record company owns all of their stuff. And I think to myself, are the record companies really, are the labels, music labels really that evil? And I wanted to ask a lawyer, I've always wanted to ask somebody, look, it's a fair and square deal when the leverage of an artist when they have nothing and they get big, these big advances that, you know, these companies bank on, you know, are betting on these artists and a lot of artists don't work out. They lose a lot of money. And then once they make a lot of money, then that's how the labels make their money back. What is the deal with so many artists today complaining about labels holding on to their, um, their, their, what is it? Their copyright or their, 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 so like when you're the great question, I see that a lot too. Um, so I think if we're talking about you know music specifically, yeah. we have to think about there's so with music copyrights, there's two things, right? When an artist, there's the composition, and then there's the recording, right? So the composition is the is the musical work. Think about like sheet music yeah. or lyrics in a notebook or whatever, right? Just the song before it becomes recorded, right? That's the composition, right? When I write something before I record it, it's like the composition, right? maybe the melody, maybe the lyrics, right? But it's all just kind of there, but it hasn't been like expressed in a... Uh, recording. Yes, correct. And then there's the recording, the master recording. So those are, those are the two mm. rights that an artist typically has when they record a song, when they make a song, right? So those are the two rights that are constantly being exchanged and exploited and monetized, right? So... Just want to explain that really quickly, uh, and I'll, we'll probably tie back to that. But as far as your question about like the fairness, yeah, and our our our, our company's evil. <laughs> I mean, are the artists really getting ripped off? I mean, you're here's going. To... A, here's the thing, right? Like, I think the I'm of the opinion, and of course, you know, feel free to disagree. I'm of the of the opinion that we are in a capitalistic society, and in a capitalistic society, there is a 
uh, a power dynamic and structure that exists where um, companies, corporations can exploit labor. And by labor, I mean talent, musicians, actors, writers, whatever, right? A lot of times when you come to, let's look at like a specific negotiation between a musician who's about to sign their first deal and a record label, right? Label, of course, they're going to lead with the strongest terms that favor them. Right. Because their their position is, and I get it, because if I was a lawyer for the, the, the label, I would, I would argue the, the same thing. Hey, I'm investing in you. You're a nobody. And I'm giving you an advance. I'm giving you the opportunity to get your music out there where you never had this opportunity before. So I want to make sure the terms that I lock in protect me. As the artist, you're like, oh shoot, I've never been, I've never seen fifty thousand dollars before in, in at once, and I'm broke and I need the money, and but I also have uh, something to say and something to express, right? So I feel like I need to protect myself, right? So there's these two competing forces that are happening here, right? And the best negotiations are ones where there's uh, you arrive at sort of the middle ground, yeah, right. But a lot of that also falls on leverage. Right. And yeah, studios are going to have more leverage. Of course, they have the resources, they have the experience. We, when we're talking about like a, a, a big company and like a small artist. Yeah, of course. So like, I think maybe fairness isn't really a great way or, or an evil aren't good words to use to characterize it. It's complicated. It's so complicated because there are things that both sides are going to want to benefit from and get out of that relationship. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that, yeah, the artist is always going to get exploited yeah. because... They don't have leverage, but you see it happening where you gain leverage the longer you are in the industry. So if you think about it, maybe in terms of, and this is what I tell people too. So we, we negotiate against the studios all the time, uh, particularly with our clients that are actors, writers, and directors when they're like booked on a show or on a movie or whatever. And I always tell them, and I work a lot with their agents on this too, like, hey, so you're not going to get everything that you want. In fact, you're probably not going to get the amount of money that you would think you would yeah. want to get, but this is your first show or your second show. But what you're doing is you're building precedence yeah. for yourself. So then once you're at a certain point, you can go back and say, Hey, no, 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 you're not paying me this. You're paying me this because I've been in the game or you have the resources to make a, a bigger impact from a leverage right. standpoint, you know? Um, but yeah, you're actually, you're, you're, and I think maybe you want to talk about this too, is your, your question actually brought in my head, it brought the Taylor Swift, right? Exactly. Stuff, right? Yeah. Um, she re had to re-record her uh, first few albums. I mean, yeah. I was like, how is that possible? I mean, I, you, you probably talked about the idea of composition and recording. Yeah. So if, yeah, if you can get into that. Yeah. So she's always owned the compositions, but the recordings, I think, I believe again, I may be wrong, but I think what happened was when she signed her first deal. She signed, she signed away uh, ownership of the master recordings, which are the actual recordings themselves, to the company, right? And then I think what happened was Scooter Braun bought that company, right? He bought that company, so then he owned the masters. Right. So he's able to do whatever he wants with the actual recordings of her songs, right? And, you know, for her, yeah, she, I, I think they had a personal relationship, and she felt like that was a betrayal. But then she, I thought she was smart. Because then she was like, oh, okay, you know what? I still own the compositions. I can still record new versions of these songs. So I'm going to do that. Yeah. And by doing so, she was able to undermine the value of the original master recording. So I think that was... And that's like one of the first times in history we've seen that, that no? Was, that was an awesome move. That was so cool when she did that. It was like yeah. a gangster move. It was gangster for it sure. She's, gangster. I mean, she's gangster. I mean, like, you know, she's on tour right now. You've, 
yeah. you know people who went to her shows yeah going out of their minds right so um yeah she's she's a pro's pro and i i respect her so much for doing that yeah you know let's talk about something that a lot of people probably don't know about you uh you okay. dj yes and you follow music you have a massive uh, breadth of music understanding what do you think it is about somebody like taylor swift uh that has risen so much and i'm, I'm asking you this just to so i can get to know who you are uh as a as a, as a person in in both the legal world and and somebody who's a big music fan that's funny right because that then now you're just exposed me as the biggest taylor swift fan <laughs> <laughs> everyone's gonna know me as a taylor swift uh, fan lawyer um, no, I mean, I, I, I would say admittedly, I'm not super into her music. It's not really designed for me, but I do see the appeal and I think she's wildly talented as a songwriter, as a performer. What, what has she done right business wise? Yeah. I mean, among I, the things we've already discussed again, this is hard because I don't know her. I don't know about her very well, but again, like I think that anecdote about her yeah. re-recording her songs, I think probably she surrounds herself with the right people. Right. I think that's really important as an artist, because you're kind of like when you're an artist, especially once you get to that level, you're just this like planet that like everyone's orbiting around. Right. You're like, a, no, you're not even a planet. You're like a sun. You're a star. You're you're literally a star that planets are orbiting around. And these planets are your accountant, your your manager, your manager, your nanny, whatever. You have all these people orbiting you that are essentially your the the you've created an ecosystem right their livelihoods depend on you right so i think being smart surrounding yourself with the right people is probably something that she did yeah you know because yeah. you know i think when she cut her first deal and she wasn't able to uh retain the the master recording uh rights um she probably didn't have the leverage to that's probably her first deal yeah right but now she has a leverage and she's able to exploit that leverage in a way that like uh is meaningful and supports her her career I think also being like having the kind of music that appeals to a lot of a broad audience is probably a big thing. Like, so Beyonce was just in LA. Yeah. She's another example of this like star that's like that planets are orbiting around too. Um, I mean, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Wait, what do you think uh, uh, they've done? Like, Taylor Swift? Both I, of them. Because you I, know about, you, you probably know as much about Taylor Swift. Than, uh, that, as I do, probably. As, as a guess, I think that she's got a strong legal team. Mm. I think she's got a strong team, strategic team that really... Because, let's face it, there are probably artists that are better than her. Yes. I mean, there has like, to be. If we're, if we're quantifying talent or something. Yeah. Then, if you're sure. quantifying talent, there's got to sure. be like uh, dozens of artists that are actually better than her writing catchier songs. But there's something in the water that their team drinks. Yeah that is creating this strategic, I bet you if you like really sat down and you analyze their team, there's like a few lawyers that are just like tip top. Yeah. There's guys probably like Ari Emanuel, like, you know, at that brainiac level where they're strategizing everything. Yes, I agree. I would agree with you there. Yeah, team. Teams. Surrounding yourself with the right people. Yeah. That's key. Yeah. That's key, yeah. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Oh, wow. That is a loaded question. <laughs> You're on the Vietnamese podcast. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Um, I think that we are people. So, okay. So I'll answer that by, 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 by talking about this, uh, uh, by, by, by relaying an anecdote first. So I just did a TikTok um, about Peter Doe. Peter Doe is a fashion designer, Vietnamese American. 
who um, just had his, who was named creative director for Helmet Lang, which is a very established old school like fashion brand. And he had his first runway show at New York Fashion Week and he killed it, which was great. But what was also cool is he had Ocean Vuong, the poet, who was, you know, incredible, uh, create text that Peter then put on the garments. Some of the text was in English, some of the text was in Vietnamese, right? But when you're just thinking about it like that way, like when I was a kid, could I have imagined like a fashion designer oh, and a poet uh, at their le at their level, but then also debuting in New York Fashion Week, right? Like I could not have imagined it. So I just thought that was such a huge cultural moment shift, yeah, for for the Vietnamese community. And I, I bring that up because I think for as a Vietnamese person, I feel incredibly proud, right? And this is this is the reason why I want and do work with so many Vietnamese people. It's because I see in them. A shared experience for my life because I'm an immigrant. I came to this country, and our families had the same exact history. All of us share the same exact history. How we got here may be different. The things that happened may be different, but the history is exactly the same, yeah. right? How we ended up in the U.S. right, like, is because of the same events, right? So because of that shared experience and because of that shared trauma, when I see us succeed despite all the circumstances, when I see like, when I hear stories about my friend's parents who were like engineers in Vietnam, but they fled Vietnam, they came to the US, they became gardeners, you know? But then they they succeeded in gardening and they opened up nail salons and now they own boats and yachts and <laughs> you know, and they and they I just see I see that all the time. I see that story play out all the time. So when I see Peter Doe and Ocean Vogue kill it in the in in, in maybe not non-traditional professions and fields and kill it in a way that's so profound that it does it didn't just affect the, the Vietnamese or Asian American community, it affects the entire like artistic world in a way, right? Like that is like so gratifying to me. So yeah, pride and also uh, uh, a sort of fellowship and an understanding of our shared history, I think. By the way, that TikTok that you just did uh, with Peter Doe um, or on Peter Doe, it is so clean. Thanks, man. I, I was so, I was like, wait, this is a lawyer <laughs> doing this TikTok. And I'm like, this is so hip, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and so yeah. where can we find that? Yeah, so you can follow us on TikTok, uh, uh, at Council for Creators. That's C-O-U-N-S-E-L-F-O-R, creators, plural. And then on Instagram, same, uh, at Council for Creators. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn too, but we're mainly active on TikTok and Instagram. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, brother. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, after so many years getting to hear really the intricacies of your work, you know, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor. Thank you, man. I was, hey, I've, like I said, I've been a huge fan of yours in this podcast for a really long time. I mean, we've been friends forever, but to see you grow the podcast to where it's at now and you, you're sort of become this platform for our community, I think, and you've, you, you provide a voice for our community too. I think that's like so, so meaningful, man. So you should be proud of yourself for that. Thank you, Chung. I appreciate it. All right, man. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.